Hey, 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 we are back with Jerusalem in the morning, and I'm your host, Rich Jehoshaphat. Now it's time for my favorite part of the program, Savior Sightings. And we have a young woman on the phone with us who had a close encounter of the messianic kind. Welcome to the program, ma'am. I'm totally excited to be here. I've never been on the radio before. How's my hair? I just got my nails uh, done, too. <laughs> you look great on the radio. Oh, and I just wanted to say hi to Sue. Sue, hi! Hi, Sue. So I was uh, hanging out at the well this week right, like I do right. every day, you know. It's the place to see uh -huh. and be seen. Oh, yeah. It really was kind of yeah, a dead yeah. day, you know, kind of a slow day. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and then I looked over, and there he was. Wow. Tall, dark, and handsome. Are you kidding me? That's the Messiah. He came over to me and asked me if I could fetch him some water. Oh. Now, if that ain't oh. the oldest trick in the book. Wow. So then I said to him, so, where are you from? <laughs> and he was like, oh, Nazareth. My, my. And so I said to him, well, don't you want to know where I'm from? And mm -hmm, he said, mm -hmm. I already know. Well, You're from Samaria. And I was like, whoa. Wow. He started talking to me and telling me things about myself that nobody knew. <laughs> he even knew about Johnny wow. and Sammy and Bobby and Ricky. Oh nobody oh. knew about them. Wow. He even knew about Obadiah. Not even Sue knew about Obadiah. <laughs> I mean, if he knew about Obadiah, then he must yeah. be the Messiah. Yeah. Wow. So I said, I gotta tell somebody about this. Sure. So I ran into town, yeah. Yeah. and I told Joan and Janine and Susie. So I dragged those girls Drag down, down to the well, and they were like, okay. oh my God, they were all totally in hysterics. Yeah, yeah, got it. Oh, listen, yeah. next time, if you see him, could you do me a favor? Oh, really, because I could really you... use it. Oh, my goodness. If you could you hand him my there. phone number, I'd really appreciate wow, it. Wow, that's fascinating stuff. You can read all about it in this week's Samaritan Times. Don't miss it. We'll be back with more Jerusalem in the morning right after this. Who knew that, uh, who knew that Samaria was down the shore, you know? Learn something new every time you come to church. Hey, welcome to Renaissance. My name is Clay. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to see you guys here this morning. And as Rich was mentioning, we're in the second week of a series that we're calling Heaven Can't Wait, and we are looking at the lives of different people from the New Testament who encountered Jesus, and it really changed their lives, it changed their outlook on life, and it gave them a whole new perspective. And if you think about it, you know, I was, I was chewing on this some this week, if you think about it, all of us at some level experience some kind of dissatisfaction with our lives. Our lives are far from perfect, they're far from the way that we want them to be, and maybe... Maybe it's your job. You know, you like your job, you're earning good money, but that job that you thought was going to give you fulfillment has become a bit of a drudgery. Or the money that you thought was going to meet all of your needs, maybe it meets your physical needs, but to borrow a phrase from the Beatles, it can't buy you love. Or maybe you've got love. Maybe you've got a really good family, you know, a wonderful relationship with your wife, with your husband, with your kids brothers and sisters, and yet even those great relationships don't meet all of, your, all of your deepest needs. Or maybe you've got a lousy job, and you've got a broken family, and you're sitting there, you're saying, absolutely, my life is pretty bad, and I'm absolutely unhappy, dissatisfied, and you know, really upset with the situation that I find myself in. Or maybe we look at it from a different perspective, 
say that you love to go to an art gallery and just lose yourself for a couple of hours in the beautiful paintings and the incredible sculptures that you see there. Or maybe you are a person who just loves going to concerts. You go to the symphony and you just close your eyes and you just kind of drift into another world. Or you go down the shore or you go to the mountains and you just love being out in nature. And for a few hours or even a few days, you get a glimpse of something that's beyond your day-to-day, mundane, earthly, physical existence. And yet, whether it's the art gallery or the orchestra or the shore, you realize it's just a glimpse. It's just a glimpse of something bigger, something transcendent, something more than my day-to-day life. And I can't live in that glimpse forever. The author C.S. Lewis, who wrote uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia, and a number of of other very famous works, C.S. Lewis, who is a devout Christian, puts it this way. He says, most people, if they really learn to look at their own hearts, would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. God never intended us to be satisfied with a merely physical, earthly existence. He created us for something more. And that something more can be found when we really encounter, when we really have a relationship with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. And we're going to look at the life of this woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, and we want to see her encounter with Jesus and ask ourselves, how can we take what she did when she encountered Jesus, and how can we apply that to our lives and learn from that and grow in our relationship with God as a result? She encountered Jesus, and he opened her eyes to a reality that was far beyond her physical existence, and it really changed her life. And we find her story in the fourth chapter of John's biography of Jesus. We've got four biographies of Jesus. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the fourth one, John... He writes about this woman whom we call the Samaritan woman. So Jesus, the kind of the setup was, Jesus was down in an area around Jerusalem called Judea. It was kind of the province uh, surrounding Jerusalem. And he wanted to go up north to an area called Galilee. And in order to do that, he had to pass through a region called Samaria. And that's where we're going to pick up the action. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And in order to get the picture of why she was kind of incredulous that Jesus was asking her for a drink, 
you have to realize what was going on culturally at that time. Samaria was located between Galilee, a Gentile, non-Jew area, and Judea, which was a Jewish area. And Samaria was really had a group of people, the Samaritans, who were, from a Jewish perspective, half-breeds. They were mixed racially, combination of Jew and Gentile, but they were also mixed religiously. They had taken Judaism, and their roots were in the Old Testament and in Judaism, but they had imported some pagan practices into it. So from a Jewish perspective, they would look down on the Samaritans. And in fact, they viewed them as religiously or ceremonially unclean. And the Samaritan woman knew this. So she says to Jesus, how can you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because in the undercurrent here is anything that I drink out of a cup or, or whatever it is, you're going to view that as religiously, as ceremonially unclean. Jews don't do that. They don't use the same utensils that Samaritans use because essentially you think they've got religious cooties, you know? And that's what's going on there. And then add to that the society in which Jesus and this woman lived, men did not treat women with any level of respect, especially if they're outside of, of the family. And so normally most men would just ignore her never approach her, have a conversation with her, and ask her for a drink. So Jesus is just shattering her categories at the beginning of this encounter because he's trying to wake her up from her physical existence and point her to something beyond that. When Jesus responds to her in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with and the well's deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well, who drank from it himself and also did his sons and his livestock? When Jesus is speaking of living water, she hears it as running water. She hears him saying, you're drinking this well water, I'm going to give you something even better. I'm going to give you spring water, you know, Poland Springs or Jerusalem Springs or whatever it might have been back then. I'm going to give you running water. You're drinking semi-stagnant water. It's drinkable. It's fine. It's not going to make you sick. But I want to give you something so much better, cold, running, pure. It's going to taste great. And that's what she's hearing because she's so focused in the physical realm. He's trying to take her beyond that but her entire life has been focused on her day-to-day -day existence. She goes to that same well every day to draw water, drags it back to where she lives, and that's, that's a huge part of her life. And she thinks that he's going to improve her earthly physical existence. But that's not what he's offering her. Jesus answers her in verse 13, and he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water every day. She thinks now he's offering her indoor plumbing, which wasn't going to be invented you know, for about 1,500 years or more than that. So she thinks that he's going to give her a supply of water that she's going to be able to drink from and not have to keep going back to the well. Again, She's so focused on her earthly physical existence that, he, that she is missing that he's offering to satisfy not so much her physical thirst, 
but her spiritual thirst, that, that deep desire that only a relationship with God can, can, uh, can quench. He's offering her eternal life, the promise of spending eternity with God in heaven in the future, but also an abundant, fulfilling life here on earth that in the spiritual realm is the equivalent of being able to drink all the running water, all the pure, clean, cool, fresh water that you could ever want and satisfy your physical thirst. He's saying, I can give you that and satisfy an even deeper thirst, the spiritual thirst that at this point you may not even consciously realize that you have. But yet she's not recognizing her spiritual need. And so Jesus tries another approach and he tells her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. This is the first century Elizabeth Taylor, you know, eight marriages to seven different men. That's who this woman is. And what Jesus is doing, it's so brilliant when you realize what he's doing. He's taking another culturally relevant aspect and trying to turn it from the physical into the spiritual. Because again, in that culture, you don't have men talking to women who are not their wives. And so what Jesus is saying is, you know, it's really not super appropriate for us to be having this conversation, just the two of us here. So why don't you go call your husband and we'll continue on the conversation. And that's how she hears it because that's what's going on at the physical, earthly, cultural level. But what he's doing is he knows that she's had multiple men, and she know, he knows that she's had five failed marriages, and that the guy that she's living with now, even that's probably not working out well. He knows that she's been looking to these relationships with these men to fulfill this deep longing, this ache, this something that is missing within her life. And so he uses the culturally appropriate way of interacting with her, and yet he's turning it to help her to see that she has a deep-seated spiritual need that none of those guys could ever possibly meet, even if they were Mr. Perfect, even if they were Mr. Right. They could never possibly meet her deepest needs, and he's trying to point her away from them and ultimately to himself as the God of the universe, the Savior of the world, and the one who can provide that living water that springs up to eternal life. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet, understatement of the day. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So Jesus, as long as we're talking about my failed relationships, could we talk about where we should worship? You know, again, she's trying to avoid the situation because it's getting a little bit uncomfortable, but notice What's happened, she's actually beginning to move just a little bit into the spiritual realm because she's beginning to talk about worship. And again, culturally speaking, you've got a controversy going on here between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews would say that the physical center of worship ought to be in Jerusalem where the temple was located. The Samaritans, who were an offshoot of Judaism religiously, said no, the physical center of worship ought to be further north in Samaria at this mountain called Mount Gerizim. And this was an ongoing debate 
between the Samaritans and the Jews for a number of different centuries here. And she's basically saying, Jesus, would you weigh in on this controversy? It's kind of like us saying, should we worship God on the third floor of the Summit Opera House above a restaurant that has a bar in it with rock music and you know videos and that sort of thing? Or should we worship God in a more traditional stone building that's got a pipe organ and stained glass? We have the same issues today. It looks a little bit different, but it's the same basic issues when we argue about where we ought to worship. And Jesus responds to her in verse 21, and he says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus says, almost as an aside, the Jews have it right. The physical center of worship is supposed to be in Jerusalem, not up here in Samaria. But he's saying, you're missing the point, because ultimately, worship is not primarily a physical act it's primarily a spiritual act. God is spirit, and we can do all the physical worship that we want to do, but ultimately, worship is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the spirit, and we have to worship God in spirit with our hearts, not so much with our hands. And so we can get all of these debates as to where we ought to, where we ought to worship. Should it be in a traditional kind of stone church, stained glass, and organ music? Should it be uh, in a more contemporary kind of place with guitars and that sort of thing. Jesus is saying, that doesn't matter. Do I stand up and sit down at the right time? Do I sing the right songs? Do I pray the right prayers? Do I recite the right creeds? That's helpful, but Jesus is saying worship is so much more. It's so much deeper than that. You're so focused on the physical that you're missing the heart. You're missing the spiritual, and that's why I, Jesus, am here to try to point you away from the physical and to the spiritual where your deepest needs are going to be met. And the woman responds and she says, I know that Messiah, who's called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. I know when the, when the man gets here, we'll get the right answer and he'll settle this controversy. And Jesus responds and he says, I, the one who's speaking with you, I'm he. I am the Messiah. I am the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that your ancestors have been waiting for. I'm the one that the Jews have been waiting for for centuries and centuries and centuries. I'm here with you right now. And if you understood who I really am, you'd be asking me for living water. You wouldn't be asking me for spring water you'd be asking me for a spiritual transformation. You'd be asking me to provide you eternal life. You would be asking me to provide you the fulfillment that you've been seeking in all the wrong places because as good as this well is and as good as the greatest human relationships could possibly be, those are gifts from God that are intended to bless us here and now but they're never intended to satisfy our deepest longings. 
because your deepest longings, he's saying to her, are only satisfied in a life-changing relationship with your creator. I've come from heaven to earth to bring you something that you can't find here on earth. I came here to meet your deepest needs. And apparently, Jesus was finally getting to, to, to break through that crust, to break through that physical focus, and to get her a look at the spiritual. Verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. She was so excited, she forgot all about her water jar, ran to the town and told everybody. And she said, here's a guy who told me everything that I ever did. And they're like, well, if he, know, if he knows everything that she ever did, maybe this is a guy we ought to check out. And she says, yeah, come with me. I want you to meet this guy. And so many of the Samaritans from that town, verse 39, believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me everything I ever did. She talked to them. She told him what she, what. Jesus said to her, and they're like, yeah, we got to get to know this guy. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. Now we've encountered Jesus for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And I love the way their faith progressed. It started when she came back and testified to what Jesus had told her. He told me everything I ever did. And they're like, we got to find out about this. And they began to believe in him. It was the beginning of their faith. But they said, we want to check this out for ourselves. We need to encounter Jesus. Our faith can't just be vicarious through you. It has to be our own faith. And so they went, they asked questions, they listened to him teach, and after they spent a couple days with him, they said, you know what? We did believe because of what you said, and that's good, but we now believe because we've encountered him, and we realize he is who he claims to be. He's the savior of the world. He's the one that we have been looking for our entire lives. And as a result, they began to experience a taste of heaven right here now on the earth. And so the question is, how do we translate from first century Samaria to 21st century Summit or Short Hills or Chatham or New Providence or Berkeley Heights or Mountainside or, or wherever you live and wherever you work and wherever you continue on in your day-to-day -day life? And I have several questions I want us to ask ourselves. They're kind of questions for reflection to help us to translate from what was going on here in John chapter 4 into our day-to-day -day lives. And my first question is, what is my well? What is my well? What is, what is that aspect of my life that reminds me that I was made for another world? What is that aspect of my life that is in some sense symbolic of my dissatisfaction with my earthly physical life? And for some of us, it may be a daily commute. You know, you get up at 5.30 in the morning, you get on the same train, you sit in the same car with the same people, none of whom talk to each other because that would be completely inappropriate for us to do. You know, you get off at the same place, you walk the same blocks to your office, 
etc. It's the commute. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with the commute. But if you're looking to your commute to fulfill you, you're looking in the wrong place. It's symbolic that something is missing in my life. Or maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's multiple broken relationships. You thought this is the relationship in which I'm going to find fulfillment. And instead, at this point, you'd say, pretty much all I'm finding is, is pain, and I'd rather be anywhere else than with that person. Or maybe it's something more positive, like a love for music or art or nature. But you realize that that music or that art or the beautiful scene in nature that you're enjoying is just a reminder that everything else in my life is just not the way it ought to be. And even that music or that art or, or the beautiful forest or the mountains just can't meet my deepest longings. And they can't meet our deepest longings because they never were intended by God to meet our deepest longings. We can't look to the gift to meet our needs. We have to look to the giver to meet our needs. My deepest needs can only be satisfied by the God who created me, not by anything that he's created. So what's my well? What's that symbol of my dissatisfaction? Secondly, where do I worship? And that's kind of a misleading question when I ask, where do I worship? It's a little bit misleading because we know the answer from what we saw with Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman is that worship is not primarily physical, it's primarily spiritual. But I'm asking it this way because so often we focus on the physical aspects of worship and we miss the spiritual aspects. Am I focused on a particular church and its traditions and its rituals? Am I focused on the particular style of music? Am I focused on the particular translation of the Bible? Am I focused on you know, different physical aspects? Or am I focusing on the spiritual aspect? Am I focusing on my heart looking to the creator of the universe to meet the needs that only he can meet? Is my, is my worship a habit? Or is it the cry of my heart where can I go and meet with my God? My deepest needs are spiritual, and they're met in spiritual worship, not in the physical acts that accompany it. Third question, am I telling anybody? Am I telling anyone about Jesus? Am I so excited that I can't help but tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done for me? And if the answer is no, actually I'm not. I really haven't told anybody about him. I haven't invited anybody to come to church to hear about him. I haven't told anybody about the difference he's making in my life. I don't want you to start trying to force yourself to do it. I don't want to guilt you into it. I don't want you to do it because I'm saying that you need to do it. What you need to do is stop and say, maybe I'm not telling people about who Jesus is because I'm not terribly excited about who he is. I haven't had that kind of encounter that the Samaritan woman had with him. Because if I did have that kind of an encounter, I'd leave my water jar and I would be telling everybody about the way that he changed my life, about the difference that he makes in my life, about the way in which he fulfills my deepest longings. So if I'm not telling people it's a sign, it's a, it's a signal then I need to be having a real encounter with Jesus. And that's the last question. Am I encountering Jesus? 
am I encountering Jesus? And I'm not asking, have I encountered Jesus? Did I encounter Jesus? The question is, am I on a day-to-day basis, today, yesterday, tomorrow, encountering Jesus? It's good if sometime in the past you came to the place where maybe when you were a child you prayed and you asked Jesus to come into your heart and be your Lord and your Savior. And it's good if there was a time in your past maybe you were confirmed or you celebrated your first communion or you first walked up those steps, those three flights of stairs, and you encountered Jesus maybe for the first time in church. But you can't live for the present. You can't live in the past. You need to live in the present. I need to encounter Jesus on a day by day, moment by moment basis. And when I do, it's going to change my life. And I'm going to find that my deepest spiritual needs are being met by him. I want to read Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 again, the the couple of verses that that Rich read earlier today. And I want us, we're going to sing a song that's based on those couple of verses. And so let me read that. We're going to sing the song, and as we sing the song, let's make it a prayer, the cry of our hearts to look to God to meet our deepest needs. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? So my soul longeth after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit. Desire and I 
let me encourage you to take some time this week, maybe every day, turn to John chapter 4, the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, and read it reflectively. And as you do, ask yourself, if I were in that story, if Jesus were here today and I were encountering him in much the same way that the Samaritan woman did, where would he meet me? What would my well be? What questions would he ask me? How would I respond to him? Would I be so focused on the physical that I'd miss the spiritual that he's trying to point me to? Where am I looking to have my deepest needs met? And ask him to turn your heart toward him that you would see what an incredible, awesome, loving, kind, gracious, forgiving, amazing God we have. And ask him to enable you to be so excited about who he is and what he's done that you just can't help but tell people about him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to come to the earth to live as a man, to encounter us that we might encounter him. I thank you that you offer us living water that can satisfy our deepest needs and our deepest longings. And I pray that as we read through John 4 and other passages of scripture, as we encounter you in the Bible that you've given us, I pray that you would transform us. I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would help us to see that our deepest needs can only be met in a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would work in us to give us a greater love and excitement for who you are and for what you've done. And as we do, I pray that we would be so excited that we would want to go out and tell everybody about how great you are and how much you love us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning, and I hope you have a wonderful week.